I have uh, the honor today to be accompanied by two of my colleagues, Sonia and Tom. Sonia, do you like to say a few words about your practice? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sonia Lim. I'm actually based in Singapore, uh, advising on financial regulations and also derivatives and structured products. Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm a managing associate uh, in the financial services regulation team in London. I focus on uh, trade, kind of trading, reporting, market infrastructure across both OTC, exchange-traded products, and across all asset classes, in, including crypto. Yeah, finally, myself, Jochen Kindermann. I am also part of the FS group here in Germany. And we have uh, a great topic, I think, for today, which is really uh, exciting. And I think all three of us, at least, accompanies uh, us throughout uh, the whole career, gold, cl uh, gold plating and global divergence, uh, which is, to be honest, it's, it's really great to have a chance to talk about this. Obviously, in light of Brexit, this is a topic that is even more interesting, but I think it's not, it's definitely not new and gold plating is something we all have on the radar for the whole time. We have tried to kind of split this session into two parts with an introduction dealing, so to say, with the understanding and clarifying, hopefully a little bit, um, these terms that are always used in various ways. And we come to this in a moment. And after we have set the scene, so setting uh, the, the legal background, etc., we would like to go into examples um, where we see on a day-to-day -day basis where these topics uh, come up. Uh, Sonia, do you like to start now a little bit with the global divergence uh, term? Sure. Uh, so let me try and do that. So I would just put it simply that global divergence means what it says, global divergence. Now, uh, what it means in practice is, you know, as regulators across the globe, um, their role is to regularly look at the regulatory framework and see whether there's a need to adjust, uh, to address different situations, whether, you know, it's a result of having to develop market infrastructure or dealing with risks or new products and services. Now, obviously, with different regulators, uh, what we've seen is that while, you know, topics may, topics may be common, the approaches could be different. And if you look at it, uh, there are various reasons for this. Uh, so, for example, um, across different jurisdictions, um, economies are at different stages of development. You have emerging markets on the one hand, and you also have developed countries. So, obviously, there are different political considerations there. Um, there is also different types of economies. There are closed economies and there are also open economies. So again, as a result of that, it could bring about different regulatory approaches. And then finally, if you look at you know, countries across the globe, each country has different stages of regulatory infrastructure. So depending on what they have or may not have, the way they deal with certain issues could be different as well. Now, um, obviously, we've all been around for quite a few years now, um, you know, advising clients in the financial markets, and we've seen a lot of uh, global divergence. So most recently, after the global financial crisis, I think OTC derivatives reporting is one area where everybody is kind of like, you know, crying out loud, screaming and saying that, hey, there is no consistency. So what does this mean? Uh, it results in... Um, Complications in compliance, huge cost of compliance, and in some cases, market fragmentation. So obviously, it's not something that people like. Now, having said that, though, um, 
I would like to just add that um, it is not that ugly a picture after all, because I think in some areas we do see that global regulators do come together um, to try and achieve some sort of harmony um, and also consistency. And, you know, in the past, we've seen, for example, between EU and the US, uh, you know, kind of a more concerted effort to ensure there is consistency and also through mutual recognition or adoption of substituted compliance. So to me, um, that basically is, you know, what we mean by global divergence, i.e. regulators having different approaches to deal with the same issue. So with that, maybe um, I'll turn you back to you, York and Tom, to talk about gold plating, because you guys are the experts uh, in UK and EU, and that is a topic that I'm sure you come across on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, absolutely. And um, I'll, I'll kick off with a kind of general comment on when we speak to clients and ask them what are their top few things on their agenda, uh, I think, you know, we're, we're not surprised to see global divergence being up there um, as one of their biggest uh, challenges um, over the next few years as markets fragment and go their own way. And I think you have to look back to the financial crisis where regulators came together. You had the G20 summit um, in Pittsburgh where certain standards were set. And I think that really kind of leads me on to the difference between gold plating and global divergence. I mean, ultimately, the outcome is the same. You end up with a different set of rules or interpretation, a different jurisdiction. But for gold plating, you know, to my mind, there needs to be a kind of base level of rules that you then gold plate from. Um, and I think, you know, a good example of that is the, the Basel, Basel standards for regulatory capital rules and also the derivatives regulation, um, for example, around clearing and OTC uh, derivatives risk mitigation. Um, another example uh, that most people will be aware of is the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive. Um, another good example um, in terms of gold plating where countries like Germany, sorry, Jochen, uh, managed to gold plate certain rules around depositories, for example. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of the derivatives trading obligation, uh, for example, you've seen other jurisdictions like the EU implement the share trading obligation, which wasn't something set at, at a global standard, but, you know, they included that in MIFIR. And interestingly, the UK is currently looking to row back on that, for example, in its current um, wholesale markets review. So before we move on to divergence as opposed to gold plating, Jochen, Sonia and I were kind of discussing how do we coin a phrase to describe where a regulator is actually kind of deregulating or cutting back on regulation. We came up with the phrase sugarcoating, which obviously has some negative connotations. And I think in some instances, that is fair. Um, and in other instances, actually, once you get past the sugar coating, you do indeed have a more beneficial position. So, for example, uh, in the area of MIFID research, uh, you know, the UK is proposing to cut back and allow exemptions for SMEs um, to encourage investment in small and medium-sized companies. Um, the EU has already implemented the quick fix, which comes into force February next year, subject to implementation. The point here is that you have very different um, approaches between the UK and the EU and different timings. So whilst it sounds great, and I think the intention is right, what you end up with <clears throat> is a real kind of piecemeal uh, approach across the UK and Europe 
where global firms have to work out who are their clients? Are they subject to EU rules, UK rules? Is this research subject to SMEs? How do you define SMEs from an EU or a UK perspective? And actually, the result is that it's too complicated and too costly for firms to implement. So an example of where sugarcoating in our, in, in, in our kind of phrasing may not work. Whereas, for example, where the UK has said, actually, for RTS 27 and RTS 28 and reports, which are the reports that uh, MIFID firms put out around their quality of execution and how they've achieved best execution, the UK has just said, you know, these are going effectively, whereas the EU is is looking to kind of amend those rules and they postpone some of those rules. Um, but in the UK, for UK firms, that, that you know, that is a, an area where actually firms are going to say, this is really going to save us a lot of money. Um, obviously, if you're a global firm and you have to comply with both obligations, it may be slightly different. So that's gold plating, sugar coating, and then divergence in my mind is maybe more generic. Um, and just very quickly, um, I'd kind of bucket that into two forms. One where you have historic rules. Um, so for example, on global licensing, that's developed over an, a number of years. And you know you just have you know differences and approaches from different regulators. Um, you then have new areas of law like crypto, distributed ledger technology, where actually there isn't that kind of historic background. And regulators are much more aware of how does this look on a global scale. Do we want to position ourselves as an open jurisdiction or a closed jurisdiction? So that's my quick take on the differences between gold plating, what we call sugar coating or deregulation. And divergence. And Jochen, it'd be good to get your perspective from an EU German perspective, maybe going into a bit more detail on what you see as gold plating, because I think Germany is a good example of where you see both gold plating and deregulation to kind of fit the German market. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the the interesting thing is from already from a starting angle, and that's why I thought already at the beginning and that the, the topic is so interesting is the understanding of gold plating varies. I have now, when prepared, preparing this session, thought there's a subjective element of gold plating and there's an objective one in a certain way. Subjective means, in my view, that everything that is, so to say, not understood and interpreted in the same way as in my home country is usually regarded as home uh, as, as gold plating, which is makes absolutely sense and uh, from a perception perspective uh, makes uh, absolutely sense. However, um, I think we have also to look into the second layer, which is the objective uh, element of, of, of gold plating. And there it gets much more complicated because we go, so to say, beyond what I regard subjectively as, uh, as difference. We now look into the legal structures. And as you said quite rightly, Tom, in a certain way, in order to talk about gold plating, you need a kind of basis from which you come from, which in a certain way either can be global regimes or global rules, or it can be, in our case, uh, uh, EU rules, um, which, um, which have developed already. And interestingly, if you look through these different phases, I mean, how does the EU actually work? I mean, in most cases, uh, the various um, pieces of legislation we work with are either directives or regulations. If you have a directive, then the situation is that each EU member state has to implement this. And this implementation process is a really difficult one because the directive in itself is only binding 
with regard to the actual goal of such a directive, which raises already the question, what is the goal of such a directive? What is the understanding of a particular provision? And uh, to be honest, I mean, again, probably typically for, typical for a German lawyer. Huh? I mean, the thing that we learn over eight years of going to the, or six years going to university, not make it too long, <laughs> um, is how do you interpret rules? And it is fascinating, and we are working on a on a on a on a on the next stage that EU rules have to be interpreted differently, for example, from German rules. And this sounds so easy, but the methodology behind it is really critical, and you have to understand that the EU works on the basis of what is the actual goal of my directive, which can even deviate from the wording, whereas we on the German side much more look on what is the so to say what does the literal wording say and then also look on so to say of the uh, on the goal of such a directive um so what does this mean it means first of all that in the in relation to the choice of form and the method how you implement such a directive each a member state is free and i mean Language, as we all know, is something that is interpreted, again, uh, completely different, which means we have already the third layer. We have first the development and the compromise in the directive, then we have the interpretation of the directive, and then we have the actual implementation, which is already the third layer of interpretation. Uh, so it's not a surprise that so to say, the outcome varies. And then on top of this, I think, Sonia, you pointed this already out, and Tom, you also, we have the interest of each member state yeah, with its own agenda, with its own interests, which are then kind of integrated in one or the other way in, in the process of um, implementing these rules. And the result of this was quite uh, funny. I found a study that was commissioned a few years ago by the British Chamber of Commerce, which just looked on the number of words used for the implementation of a particular directive. And the outcome was um, that the um, in local implementations was often three times longer than the original directive. So, in other words, we see a. I understand already from the many translations that we did. German language might be a bit more complicated or more difficult in its uh, phrase structure, but it's simply the fact that you put so many additional layers in it because you come from a completely different legal system. The UK system being a bit more descriptive, I would say, Tom, correct me, I completely <laughs> can jump in, but much more descriptive, whereas we came from an abstract level um, and have abstract rules and all everything has to fit into these kind of corpus um, that that is irrelevant. So, in other words, this is one layer. And I think the EU has already reacted to this because everyone, obviously everyone is aware of the issues. Tom, you mentioned costs in this context of trying to implement regimes. And if the EU side quite often has, I think, the positive um, approach and goal to harmonize something, then on national level, this is often completely uh, uh, done in the, in, the, in, the, in the contrary or implemented in a contrary way, meaning they put their own elements in it. And then we don't end up in a harmonized environment, but in a completely different one. So the EU reacted to this by, I think, using much more regulations. Regulations do not have to be implemented. They apply as they are, by the way, in the respective national language. 
although the debate is taking place with, on the basis of English uh, documents, etc. But ultimately, the binding uh, document is then the local uh, language version, yeah, which already uh, is interesting because we often, uh, when we read the German version, find out that there are quite substantial errors in it yeah, before we even go to the level of interpretation there. So, the, but the point with this, with this kind of regulation is it leads to the consequence that we end up with Uh, uh, with projects like Me Fit Me Fear, where you have hundred times as much detail on the EU level directive already before it goes onto into the national level, and if then the national level again puts its own layer on it, I think we all know that I have often the feeling no one has any more, so to say, that really one understands what is the actual purpose. And when, Tom, you talked about RTS 26, 27, I would not like to raise the question how many people really know what we are talking about, because already this is difficult to understand. And I think this is contradicting, uh, the, the, in a certain way, the good purpose of trying to harmonize something and to kind of find the joint understanding of uh, of the regime which is necessary because the all the really relevant other angle to this is if the markets develop much more globally uh, throughout the past years then i think we can all complain about regulation but regulation is relevant it is important for the whole market, not only just for consumers, but also to kind of create a level playing field and to allow various investors to uh, invest in a secure way into a market infrastructure. And, and I think with this, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I completely agree. And, you know, the debate in the UK is, you know, is the UK deregulating to put itself at a competitive advantage? Or is it genuinely looking at cost benefit analysis and cutting back on rules that don't add enough value or value compared to, to the cost of, to, to ultimately the, con the consumer and the, the end, end user bears. I completely agree. In particular, um, Thomas, we had the discussion that the MIFID is a very good example where I think the EU developed in a direction which was qu quite heavily driven by the, uh, by the UK initiative to have a descriptive, uh, more descriptive uh, approach, whereas we, we usually, as I said, come more from an abstract element. Now, the interesting situation is obviously that the UK is in a completely different situation and has to adjust to the new market situation and the EU reacts in, in, in the similar in, in a similar way, but obviously in another direction. <laughs> That's not a surprise. Absolutely. Uh, learning from their mistakes. Um, <laughs> I was just going to ask Sonia, just moving back to global divergence away from gold plating, whether kind of you've got a good example. I think we've probably spoken about the concepts enough, whether you've got a good example yeah. of global divergence. I mean, Tom, I, I have to say that the one topic that people are talking about is crypto. And we kind of mentioned this in this discussion as well. So if I were to just look at Asia, right, um, and I think a lot of us know it, China, on the one hand, has totally banned crypto. So that's a complete ban of crypto. Now, sitting in Singapore, um, it's a totally different environment. Um, so dealing in, um, you know, payment tokens, uh, it is actually permissible. So it's complete opposite from China. Now, um, I think the thinking of the local regulators here is that uh, it is actually, you know, encouraging uh, and it welcomes business uh, transformation. 
Now, but having said that, it is also mindful of risk, uh, you know, relating to, you know, crypto, crypto assets. So what's happened in Singapore is that it is a licensable activity. So if you want to deal in, you know, crypto, you have to get a license. And in order to deal with the potential risk, there are also very stringent requirements on AML, KYC, and, you know, on uh, segregation of client assets and client monies. So what you see here is a case where regulators put in place a framework that allows for certain activities to take place in Singapore. Now, the end result of this is that uh, it's been reported that, you know, some of the largest players in the world, like Coinbase, uh, they have actually applied for license, uh, you know, to, to actually set up shop in Singapore. Um, now, um, having said that, though, uh, regulators in Singapore, while they are welcoming, they, are, they also take a very hard stance. So as an example, um, again, you know, it is out in the public. Binance was actually, you know, criticized recently for not obeying the rules. So this is an example where in Singapore, right, uh, because of the, um, you know, different uh, in, 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 in the economic environment, uh, it is an example where the regulators do permit these kind of innovative ideas, but in a controlled way. Now, turning back to China then, and I think we can all debate and speculate about this. Uh, as we all know, you know, crypto is banned. Now, if you look at Singapore and China, they are very different types of economy and different types of system, right? On the one hand, uh, you can say that, you know, China traditionally, there has been capital controls. There are restrictions on cross-border transfers. Um, so as a result, um, the idea of payment tokens may not be as well tolerated, right? Primarily because it's not backed by any central government. Now, the other dynamic in China, obviously, is that they are also looking at their own digital currency. So, you know, obviously, from that perspective, uh, they probably want to promote that more than, uh, you know, payment tokens. So I think, you know, to me, that's just one very good example where if you look at uh, what is global divergence? Uh, different regulators uh, are actually putting in place and having different approaches just to deal with, you know, what is it that they want to promote or encourage within their locations, but it, but also making sure that there are sufficient risk and controls in place. So, you know, I'm not sure, Tom and, you know, Jochen, what the situation like is like, you know, for crypto in EU or in UK, because that obviously, I'm sure, is very, you know, uh, spoken a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's a really good topic currently, I would say, <laughs> the, the, the crypto world, um, because the, in this case, the EU yeah, is totally fragmented currently. So meaning you have to uh, kind of uh, approach each country separately. And uh, Tom, coming back to the cost element, yeah, this obviously is not uh, uh, leading really to an efficient way and, and market participants uh, obviously hesitate. Although, and this is the other angle, and Sonia, the, the interest of the regulators is obviously to, on the one hand, be attractive. Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone is interested to, to have this kind of industry in its, in its environment. But when we started a while ago this discussion around crypto, in particular with Asia, <clears throat> it, is, it was interesting to find out that you are, so if I may generalize this, you are so far ahead in terms of experience, I would say, 
that it doesn't surprise me that we are a little bit behind, but in particular Germany, I think we can say, has now reacted to this because the demand is there. Um, but now the situation is we are coming from this fragmented situation <clears throat> and now the EU develops a framework. The problem is how the, should this look like in light of the experience that others made? This takes its time. We have different countries with different interests again here on the radar. And Germany as a typical, I would say, selling market of products, simply because it's a larger market in the EU community, community has, of course, um, reacted to this. And we have throughout the last two years uh, dramatically uh, developed this area with new license requirements, with, with, with new definitions, etc., etc., and this now, in a certain way, will influence uh, the de development also on the EU side. Yeah, that is what we see currently is to what extent can you then kind of roll out, by the way, the same approach that Germany has taken with regard to the HFT side, so high frequency trading, kind of setting the scene, developing something, and then seeing how this fits into the wider EU regime. Um, and this is simply something uh, where you can see the, these typical elements of, is this already gold plating? No, not yet. Currently, it's a national initiative, but it will become also when, so to say, the MIGA comes into force, an element of gold plating. And additionally, uh, Sonia, it's a race, so to say, this, this competition in, across the world, yeah, global divergence, which is, which is very obvious there. Tom? Yeah, I mean, we haven't got a US speaker on the, on the line, but just... You know, interesting to see the US approach is not that dissimilar from China with Gary Gendler's crusade against, uh, you know, a lot of the industry. And I think the amount of litigation and, you know, potential or actual enforcement action in the US is, is mind boggling to someone in the UK. Um, the UK very briefly, um, has, you know, followed the EU, uh, in the sense of it's implemented AMLD5, anti-money laundering directive. So it's now brought crypto into the scope of, uh, uh, anti-money laundering, which is the, the big risk. The next big risk that the UK is tackling, which is very different to the EU, is it's bringing or looking to bring crypto within scope of its financial promotion regime. And when we talk about crypto here, we're talking about unregulated, so not tokens that, that effectively shares or derivatives on crypto, but proper crypto tokens. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really interesting because I think it's the first time that the UK will have brought an unregulated product in the scope of its financial promotion regimes. So the UK splits the way it regulates financial promotion, marketing, and then the actual conduct of regulated activities, whether that's dealing or, or, or arranging or whatever it is. And that has thrown up some interesting kind of breaks between you know how the two regimes fit together so yeah but really really kind of technically quite difficult um in the in the uk and then i just just to kind of mention a few other examples of uh uk um divergence uh, you know in particular against the eu given the uk's followed the eu up until uh last year um you've got you know big projects on AIFND, Alternative Investment Fund Manager Directive, in particular on the EU side, kind of attacking um, you know, the delegation of portfolio management. And the UK is certainly not looking to follow suit on that, given the importance of London and the, the way kind of people delegate back to, back to London. On MIFID, it's an absolute huge swathe of, uh, of area um, where, where, where we're seeing divergence. And you know, I've recently read the algorithmic uh, trading paper around potential exemptions in the EU for DEA, you know, 
people with direct electronic access or high frequency traders if there's an equivalency decision. Mm-hmm. And just a final point from me uh, on uh, divergence and you know, one area we haven't touched on is equivalency. So, you know, CCP equivalency, trading venue equivalency, the timing of those equivalency directives. And, you know, for example, the, you know, the EU's equivalency to the US in relation to derivatives intergroup margin exemption doesn't cover everyone. It only covers major um, registered swap dealers. So if you're not a registered swap dealer, you're kind of out of scope. And that, this is an area that people don't think of as divergence, but actually, it, you know, it creates a divergence for, for clients. I think um, we have only one second more or less or one minute to go. Sonia, any conclusions from your angle? Uh, I mean, I, I, the, the way I see it is we can't run away from global divergence. I think we can only hope that uh, regulators would work together for us to actually, you know, hopefully develop a level playing field. Um, and the other point I would also make that sometimes with global divergence, there can be opportunities, right, for institutions to explore. It can be frustrating, but in a sense, it does create opportunities as well. And, you know, you can actually leverage on that. Oh, that makes makes absolutely sense. I mean, obviously, everyone has has these challenges, and as you said, we will we will not, uh, it will it will always exist because it's a matter of markets. Ultimately, it's one part and one element of competition. Is that that will always exist? What we obviously try to support you with is with tools. I mean, obviously, everyone tries to kind of identify, in particular, the nuances, the differences in the interpretation, which are even more complicated than, so to say, the larger elements of cryptos, etc. And we, as you know, offer a number of tools to address exactly these issues, like the Navigator tools, where you see across the world the differences in the interpretation, in the various rules, on an updated version. And uh, I hope these kind of tools simply help you to identify these issues, because ultimately it's clear You have to comply with the local regimes there. And this is something um, that is obviously uh, then challenging in this context. And I think with this, I'd like to conclude. Many thanks for participating in the sessions. If you have any questions, further questions, please let us know. Thank you.